Today's episode is brought to you by J.P. Gritton's debut novel, Wyoming, which has received starred reviews from both Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, and was recently named one of Kirkus's best books of 2019. Something like a cross between Daniel Woodrell and Annie Pruel, Wyoming is about the stubborn grip of inertia and whether or not it is possible to live without accepting oneself. Says Alice McDermott of Wyoming, this is a compassionate novel for all its violence and despair, an authentic, pitch-perfect portrait of an America too often caricatured or ignored. There are hard truths here, grit and cruelty, but J.P. Gritton's fine prose is nuanced enough, generous enough, to keep his troubled narrator's humanity his beating heart apparent at every turn. Wyoming is available now from Tin House Books. I'm excited to share this conversation with poet Jake Skeets about his collection Eyes Bottled Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. Jake adds some really interesting audio to the bonus audio archive as well, a reading and analysis of a poem by Lucy Tapahanso called Hills Brothers Coffee, as part of a discussion of Diné or Navajo poetics, something Jake calls Dinetics. You can find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio or learn how to become an early reader receiving 12 Tin House books over the course of the year, months before they're available to the general public, among a wide variety of other gifts for those who support the show. You can find out all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you're old school and want to support this endeavor without the swag, you can go to tinhouse.com slash support. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet Jake Skeets. Skeets is a graduate of the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. His poetry and prose have appeared in Plowshares, The Rumpus, Word Riot, Waxwing, Yellow Medicine Review, World Literature Today, and at the Poetry Society of America, among many others. Skeets edits Cloud Throat, an online magazine for Native, First Nations, and Indigenous writing and art. He also organizes the Poetry Salon and reading series Paul and Tongue, is a member of the Diné Writers Collective, and teaches at Diné College in Arizona. 
Jake Skeets is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his debut collection of poetry published by Milkweed Editions, entitled Eyes Bottled Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers, and selected by Kathy Fagan as a winner of the 2018 National Poetry Series. Tommy Orange says, Jake Skeets writes, With such sparse yet full beauty, you sometimes don't know where the source of the power of these poems comes from. It is in the power of his language, in the craft, of course. It is in how the brutal experience of pain and loss can become a thing of beauty, which is where grace lives, which is where the best art comes from. There is so much bottle-dark beauty here. Skeets is a new essential voice in poetry, in literature. D.A. Powell adds, Jake Skeets takes us to the quote-unquote Indian capital of the world, a landscape of erosion and erasure, where boys only hold boys like bottles, and eros is a dangerous thing. In the brush and horseweed, ghosts and trains and abandoned trailers, a young Diné attempts to answer all the question marks of adolescence and early adulthood, desire and death commingling around him. These are poems born of unspokenness, testing the limits of language, love, and silence. Lastly, Kathy Fagan says, On its surface, eyes bottled dark with a mouth full of flowers is an examination of toxic masculinity through the lens of a queer indigenous Southwesterner, a book in which alcoholism, violence, and sex under cover of night are both ruefully and sensually described. But experiencing Jake Skeet's collection is more akin to listening to a musical score to or watching the choreography of one Diné man's vivid boyhood, the family and community of that boyhood, and the landscape holding them all. Indeed, like a lover, the land of these poems enters and ornaments Skeet's men, old and young, dead and alive. His images haunt, and his use of repetition field and fragment provide the book's structural genius he's a major debut that feels to me timely and timeless welcome to between the covers jake skeets thank you thank you for having me so you you had originally thought of working on two separate poetry collections but then ultimately came to realize not only that they were connected but that their themes which seemed separate were perhaps inseparable um can you talk first about the two projects as you first conceived them and then about how you came to realize that maybe for you these were one project yeah definitely i think when i first started my mfa program at iaia i was very obsessed with first books i had a a lot a of sort of inspiration coming from first books so specifically books like ocean of wong's Poetry Collection, Saeed Jones, um, right, Derek Austin, these types of poets who sort of did the job of the body, I think, really just understanding the body and really writing a collection surrounding the body. So that was the type of collection that I was very interested in. And so that's the type of collection I wanted to write was just the sort of what I call a coming out collection, right? The, the debut of a queer poet. Right, talking about the body, talking about desire. And then sort of midway through my program, I decided to move back home to the reservation. And I saw this place, Gallup, New Mexico, as an adult this time, because I had left when I was 
18, right, right after right after high school, I went to college. And so this is my first time, like, back, back, like, actually living at home. And it was, I sort of saw all this violence again for the first time, it seemed like. And that's when this sort of collection shifted into this collection about Gallup. And so for the longest time, I was trying to juggle this idea of the body and this idea of landscape and Gallup. And so I thought I was writing these two collections. Maybe, you know, I would have the body collection come out first, then maybe a collection about Gallup. But then as I started to really delve into what it meant to be a queer poet and what it meant to be a Danette poet, I began to see how I couldn't separate my queerness from that violence. Hmm. That my queerness was uh, sort of blossoming within that type of space. So it was really interesting for me to be in a position where I had to come to terms with brutality, come to terms with violence. And I think for me to do that, it was through craft and it was through this concept of beauty, which I borrow from my own sort of upbringing as a Danette person. Hmm. Well, one thing that you've said was that you discovered that an energy exists within the land and that even when you purposely drove your poems away from Gallup, away from masculinity and away from queerness, that through some unconscious part of yourself, these spaces found themselves in your, in your poems and that the poems kept placing themselves in Gallup. And much like Laylee Long Soldier opens Whereas and Mitchell S. Jackson opens Survival Math, your, your collection opens by summoning the specificity of place. So I thought maybe we could start by grounding listeners uh, in Gallup, New Mexico, for people who don't know it, can can we can you uh, orient us to to Gallup as as you know it, and yeah. also the mythology of Gallup as well? Yeah, definitely. I, I just had the panel about myth, and we're talking about the idea of the American West, the idea of American progress, and I feel like Gallup is such a hidden central place for all of that, both uh, manifest destiny, both expansion into the West. But also even myths like old Hollywood, right? Gallup is such an interesting place where all these different histories and lineages come together. So in terms of Gallup itself, it it sits on you know the historic Route 66. Um, it's uh, definitely a railroad town. It's named after David Gallup, who was the paymaster for the railroad, and it sits in a place that is adjacent to both. I mean, not both, but to several native nations. So, for example, it's so close to the Navajo Nation. In fact, it's parts of Gallup are considered Navajo Nation because it's sort of a checkerboarded area is what they call after the Allotment Act. Um, so we, you would have like one section be, you know, reservation, then you would drive, you know, five minutes to the east, and then you'd be in, you know, the, the private land of Gallup or um, that type of different ownership. And it also sits next to the Zuni Pueblo, which is about maybe 20 minutes south of Gallup, and then the Laguna Pueblo, which is maybe about an hour east. And, of course, we have Hopi in within Navajo. Um, so it sort of sits within uh, a place where it's so adjacent to all these different communities, which is why, of course, it's labeled the Indian capital of the world. And so generally what that means is because it's a border town, it sits at the border, Families from these communities will drive into Gallup to, you know, purchase groceries, 
purchase supplies for their homes, which is what I did as a child. I didn't grow up specifically in Gallup. I didn't have, have a house there, but I grew up 10 minutes south of it. And so we would often drive to Gallup daily for, you know, just daily tasks um, and then sort of haul everything back home. Hmm. So within that sort of structure, you had, you know, the, the boom of, of liquor stores and bars within Gallup, which really gave rise to the alcoholism that sort of exists, that existed and exists still in Gallup. And so it's... Uh, it has all these different type of histories attached to it. Um, and in the book, I try to delve into all of them, the resource extraction, railroad, uh, the alcoholism issue, and also old Hollywood, hmm. right? The idea of like, cause there's a hotel in Gallup called the El Rancho hotel where, uh, all these celebrities have stayed. And so I have a poem called a list of celebrities who stayed at the El Rancho hotel, just to, you know, have that old Hollywood element, just to have this weird, Engagement between someone who's a celebrity versus someone who uh, is considered a drifter in Gallup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of your poems also references an article by Nick Estes called Blood Money, Life and Death in Gallup, New Mexico, which describes some of the things you say. Also uh, lets us know that Navajo make up almost half the population, that it's the poorest county in New Mexico. And like you mentioned, the liquor industry has a stranglehold over the city and the FBI calls it the most dangerous city in New Mexico, um, where violent, unnatural deaths for Native people are an everyday occurrence. And he also points out in that article that Native people are the most likely population to be killed by police officers nationwide, and that New Mexico ranks number one in deaths by police of any state in the United States. And Gallup has two nicknames, I guess, one being Indian capital of the world and, and the other one being Drunk Town. And I was hoping maybe we could hear that poem, Drunk Town, that um, is near the beginning of your collection. Drunk Town. Indian, Eden, open, tooth, bone, bruise, this town split in two. Clocks ring out as train horns. Each hour hand drags into a screech. Iron, steel, iron. The minute hand runs its fingers through the outcrops. Drunk town. Drunk is the punch. Town a gasp. In between the letters are boots crushing tumbleweeds. A tractor tire backing over a man's skull. Men around here only touch when they fuck in a back seat. Go for the foul with 30 seconds left. Hug their sons after high school graduation. Open a keg. Stab my uncle 47 times behind a liquor store. A bar called Eddie's sits at the end of the world. By the tracks, drunk men get some sleep. My father's uncle tries to get some under a long bed truck, the truck backs up to go home. I arrange my father's boarding school soap bones on white space and call it a poem. Like my father, I come upon death, staggering into the house with beer on the breath. 
Mule deer splintered in barbed tendon, gray highway, veins narrow, push, pull under teal and red hills. A man is drunk staggering into northbound lanes, dollar bills for his index and ring fingers, sands glitter with broken bottles, greens, deep blues, clears, and golds. This place is white cone, greasewood, sanders, whitewater, bread springs, crystal, chinli, naslini, Indian wells, and all muddy roads lead from gallop. The sky places an arm on the near hills, on the shoulder, dark gray, almost blue, bleeds into greens, blue-greens, turquoise into hazy blue, pure blue, no gray or gold or oil-black seeped through. If I stare long enough, I see my uncle in a mirror, the bottle caps we use for eyes. An owl has a skeleton of three letters, O twists into L. The burrowing owl burrows under dead cactus, feathers fall on horseweed and skull bone blown open. Been listening to Jake Skeets read from his collection Eyes Bottle Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. Perhaps similar to the way you've brought two collections into one, or the way that Gallup has two ways it is described. You've described this collection as an attempt also to not polarize beauty and brutality, Mm -hmm. to ask the question of what it would mean if we considered them simultaneously, or even discover one within side of the other. Uh, And you have a series of poems that punctuate the collection or perhaps serve as connective tissue in the in the collection called In the Fields. And they're very different formally. One is seven words, one is a prose block, one is scattered letters, and one is formed in couplets. But they all share the same name, and I wonder if they also share a common function as we travel through the poetry and spend time in each of these fields. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us how you envision and employ the In the Fields poems. The field itself is such a huge place for me as a poet. And so when I first began the field's poems, I was sort of struck um, by the way people sort of approach the American West or just the Southwest in general. I feel like the desert has always been a place of this like cosmic or mythological reflection for, for, for people, right? You think of like the doors, right? The, the, this idea of like the psychedelic desert or mm. the electric desert, or you go out to the desert and you find yourself, right? And then there's also uh, the notion that the desert is somehow foreshadowing a, a bit, right? You sort of look out into the fields and you see this dark, rain cloud, right? And then that's automatically considered foreshadowing of something Mm. darker that's coming or something that's looming in the distance, right? And so for me, I was very interested in that. And I wanted to speak back to it um, or speak against it in some way. So because for me, back home, the fields 
uh, are places for reflection, definitely, but not in the sense of I'm going to find myself in in these spaces. It's more so I'm going to experience this particular place uh, with, you know, concepts of beauty, concepts of recognition and acknowledgement of everything existing within that field, right? So not only wildlife, but plant life, but also just the forces that created that particular field, right? So you have erosion, you have wind, gravity, those types of things that sort of shape it. And so for me, the field's poems became literal fields for the reader to sort of step back and reflect or step out of the collection a little bit and just find themselves again um, and also recognize the energies that exist within them. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's for me, because I knew the collection was going to be very grief-heavy, the field's poem came way after I was sort of finished uh, with the collection for the most part. I wanted places where the reader can have a, platform or just a quiet space where they can just you know calmly collect themselves again but of course those fields right are the also the same places where men went to sort of learn their bodies or learn desire much like me but also they became a place where men would also lose their lives um and of course uh, the in the fields that phrase came from the nick estes collection i'm not sure if you read it but uh he also lists all these people who were found uh, dead in the in the fields hmm. and sort of goes through the list, and that's where the listing sort of came across um, in in the collection as well. C- could we hear the in the fields on on page seventy six, and then also um, I was thinking maybe after that we could hear after party. In the fields, with lines from D. A. Powell, we unyoke owl pellets from marrow and desert meadow, his mouth a pigeon eye, a torch, a womb-turned flower, he, still a boy dug from cactus skull, undresses into bark beetles, he unlearns how to hold a fist with my hand, bursts into dandelion seeds, We are all beautiful at least once. Mud water puddles along enamel. Eye teeth blossom into osprey. Our bones dampen like snow melt under squirrel grass. We could be boys together finally as milk vetch, tumbleweed, and sticker bush. We can be beautiful again beneath the sumac, yarrow, and bitter water. After party. We tank down beer. Eyelids lower and lower. He lets me feel beneath his basketball shorts. Sorrel feels along his thigh. Burrows in our bellies heavy and heavy from rolling rock and blue ribbon aluminum ghost coaxes his kiss candle left lit he mouths the neck and lip of another bottle rifle cold my tongue coils on the trigger before its click corn beetles scatter out no longer his bones. 
been listening to Jake Skeets read from Eyes Bottle Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. So I read somewhere that the word Navajo, possibly given to the Diné people by the Anasazi, originally meant the field people. I don't know if that's true. And in, in one place, this was explained as being because the Diné were a pre-colonial agricultural tribe. And then in another place that I discovered a, a talk by a Navajo elder, that the explanation was that at the age of four, children are taught that they are themselves a field. And I don't, I, of course, I have no way to verify either of these, but I, I wondered if the idea of, of the field people was something you were conscious of when writing the field poems. Yeah, no, I I don't think I've heard specifically that type of translation. I, I've actually heard several, but it does sound very similar to what I've heard, mm. right? Because I've heard that uh, Navajo itself, the word Navajo can mean a lot of different things, um, right? So like the idea of, you're right, being like, like, you know, agriculturalists or farmers. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of different translations from what I heard. I've even heard that it means like thief as well, right? Oh, wow. Um, it, it, for me, and. Navajo is such a really interesting word because I, I can't really trace an origin in myself. Uh, people say uh, Laguna Pueblo gave it to us. Some say it's a Spanish word. Uh, so it, it, there's really sort of no origin for it. Um, but you're right. In, in terms of the our ancestral name, right, Diné, that is literally translated to the people, uh, which is very similar to a lot of different tribes across the country. Um, and so I think the way we approach the field, the idea or the concept of the field is through the recognition of its energy. Um, back home, there's a specific sort of thought process or life way that Diné follow. Um, and it's sort of guided around the idea of process and structure. Um, when we talk about, I, I, I'm also a teacher at Diné College, and we also have sort of an educational philosophy that, was rooted in Diné thought and life way. And so it's called like a, like a philosophical model. Um, and it has four steps. The first step is, uh, which means like critical thinking, right? So the fact that whenever you start anything in your life, even if it's just your day or a new project, or you're going to wash the dishes, right? There's always this step of where you have to think about what you're going to do. And then there's the, the second step, which is not, ah, Right, the idea of planning or making sure that you're doing, you're going to do whatever you need to do in a way that's uh, effective and um, essential, and you're being respectful. And then there's ina, which means life, uh, which which is doing the thing, or you're living, or you're going through the process. And then the last step is sihasin, and so for me, what what that means is reflection. Um, and so sihasin is such a huge part of my life because of those fields. Right. I was very interested in, again, the concept of the field as reflection. And so CSN is such an important part of um, being who I am, being a Diné person. Uh, it's such a crucial sort of step. And, of course, that's what I teach my students as well, um, is that it's often a step that's overlooked. Right, We don't often think about what we've done or think about what we've said. Um, I think there's always a good way to sort of look back at yourself or... Uh, look into a mirror, and for me, th that's what the fields are. They also function as as mirror. Hmm. Well, when I see some of the field poems having a lot of white space or words that are scattered across the page, I wonder if you see the page as a sort of field. But you sort of answer the question already in an, an incredible essay that I'm going to 
point people to at World Literature Today called Poetry as Field. And I was hoping you to unpack the opening lines for us, which are, there is a field, we don't question its meaning or try to find narrative or accessibility, there is simply a field. When I approach poetry as an instructor, as a teacher, I always try to mention um, that we read poetry not in the, not the way we read prose, like fiction or nonfiction. And so what I call it instead is more experiencing poetry. And I have this sort of thought process or thought exercise where I have where I have the sort of either my students or if I'm leading a workshop, have them close their eyes and think about um, that they're hiking, that they're outside, that they're sort of hiking up this big hill and there's, and I'm asking them to populate what they see, right? If there's, if it's really, if there's like a really big forest or if it's just uh, scattered, but they're going up this hill and then they come across this field and I ask them to populate that field with things that they would, you know, that would make sense in that field. And so I've had, you know, students who've, you know, populated with rivers, a stream, a creek, uh, wildlife, of course, uh, gardens or flower beds or, you know, grasses of different kinds. Um, and then I asked them to open their eyes and I asked them what they were thinking or what they were feeling. And it's normally, you know, the, the, the ideas of being calm or being uh, at peace, right? Um and then I'm always, and then I ask the question, did you ever wonder what the meaning of the field is? Like, were you trying to access why it's there? Were you trying to access its structure? Were you trying to access um, a possible message of the field? And the answer is normally no, right? Because you're not there to dissect the field, right? You're not there to extract anything from the field. You're there for, you know, you're simply there. And you're simply seeing this field and you're experiencing yourself in seeing that field, um, which I think is the best way to approach poetry first, mm. of course, um, as a poet and as a, also a reader, as a student, it's best just to approach a poem the same way you would approach a field, um, um, just experiencing it, taking everything in. And then, of course, of course, if you're a literature student or anything like that, if you're a poet and you want to understand craft or you want to understand meaning or message, then you can go back. But for me, the best way to honor language is just first listening to it. Hmm. Well, there was a a tweet in the last couple of days by Natalie Center Zapico about where she was quoting someone else about Walt Whitman and the use of free verse in relationship to the imperial enterprise of America mm-hmm. that he, outside of his poems, supported. Um, and you you retweeted with a comment that I thought was interesting where you say that you you teach your students that there isn't anything really that's free verse. And you relate the absence of a true free verse to this notion of our needing to contend with a field. Mm-hmm. Could, could you unpack that a little bit for us? I, I loved I loved it, but I also would love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say. When we talk about sort of having a colonial mindset or an imperial mindset, I think it's sort of ingrained within all of us because we all participate in conquest and disappearing and displacement because we're sort of given this mindset or this thought process of where we have to understand everything or we have to be at a place where we can 
negotiate or engage with a thing um, on our level. Um, right. So when you think about just the myths of America, right, again, going back to, you know, manifest destiny, American progress, American West, it's always something that we can overcome and that we can uh, participate in. Right. And so for me, um, when I approach a poem and I approach it in a way where you want to experience it first, for me, again, it's, it's a way of honoring that place. It's honoring language, but there's always this sort of notion or this drive or something that pulls us toward wanting to extract things from it. Right. Which is both very, you know, in a literal sense, very real. Right. When you think about in order for us to have these things in our daily life, these conveniences, it's relied on extraction from those fields, whether it be coal, you know, gases, right, those types of things. So from from my eyes, it's sort of American progress is always driven by um, native populations or indigenous populations, right? Whether it be native tribes themselves and the, the resources they have on their lands, but also, right, when we think about labor, right, the way the most, uh, un, you know, talking about sort of undocumented immigrants and the workforce that they bring to America, right? It's sort of, um, and of course, we can talk about, you know, you know, historically America, right, talking about its foundation in, you know, slave labor, right? The idea that it's always on the backs of black and brown bodies that America is able to sort of progress and, you know, become this uh, nation, right? And so for me, that's all um, under this precursor of trying of of this mindset of you have to understand something or you have to be able to overcome it um which i think is maybe just an anxiety or fear that um we all have inherent as sort of people and so um when we when we approach free verse right there's this idea where then the page is this open thing that we can then conquer right um we don't have you know we don't have structures we don't have we don't have form. We don't have anything like that. So we're just going to approach the page how we want to, right? Um, for me, that's – and I, I totally agree with what Natalie um, retweeted or quoted from another, uh, I think, poet-scholar um, about the imperial mindset and free verse, right? It's th- this idea of conquering the page with your own sort of structures. Hmm. Um, and so when I when I tell my students there's no such thing as free verse, it's always on um, sort of – sort of with the understanding that we approach poetry not for extraction but for honoring and uh, acknowledging things that exist right and so i always go back to the metaphor of the field right it's not just there forces and structures and systems have made that possible through you know millennia of 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 sort of processes over over time and so when you're looking at a field you're not just looking at wildlife you're not just looking at plant life you're not just looking at nature you're looking at time and the way time has evolved through um, the years so that you're able to see physically and touch, you can touch time with those particular fields. Hmm. Well, at one point in this essay, Poetry as Field, you say, the function of the poet is to remind us that there is a field there, even if we don't give it language. Poetry becomes the field bringing function back to art. And then you go on to wonder about art versus function when a, a friend of yours tells you of his trouble with the term native art, because in his mind, there's no such thing as native art, because art to Dene is not aesthetic, but functional. Then you ask the question of quote unquote native art 
whether it is something beyond art or whether it exists in a different lexicon than aesthetic versus functional. And I love how you answer it by refusing to answer it in language, which goes back to the beginning lines. You say, the question remains, is it art? What is art? And your answer is, there is a field. We don't question its meaning or try to find narrative or accessibility. There is simply a field. That's, that just feels brilliant. It's like a koan, but it also feels like it's the true answer at the same time. I feel like when I was writing that essay, I was, I was having all these questions about art and function. And then I began to think maybe I'm asking the wrong questions or I'm asking a different type of question that I'm not certain I even want the answer to. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is right. I mean, even if we talk about, um, you know, the, you know, sort of like this lexicon of, um, art and function, it's still not getting to the essence, right? The fact that this artifact like art or this thing like a field is is existing, right? And when we're just sort of stuck in language a little bit, I mean, not necessarily, um, you know, a, a poetic language, but like just the colonial or English language, we're forgetting that, that this thing exists, right? Yeah. And so for me, that's, um, that's sort of what I feel is the responsibility of myself as a poet is just letting people know that we are often overlooking things. Well, it reminded me a little of a, a talk I went to this last summer of Natalie Diaz, where she talked about how outside the reservation, she has to navigate being a much sought after poet. But then when she goes home, people aren't very impressed with her being a poet. They want to know what action it creates, what impact it has. And she's now taking those questions seriously, looking to put her poetry in motion in a way in response to those questions. So I don't know if she's looking for necessarily to answer the aesthetic versus functional, but she's definitely taking both sides of that conundrum seriously. All native poets probably wrestle with that idea of how then is poetry activism, right? Which is sort of the basis of this um, essay, right? It was the, the theme of World Literature Today's issue was literary activism and what that meant. And so for me, when I approach the idea of action, um, right, I think poetry is, in my opinion, right, it's because it's entirely my opinion, um, I think poetry is most in sort of, uh, is very similar to this notion of, uh, you know, decolonization and things like that, right? Because we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with a language that's colonial, that's imperial, that displaces and disappears people. But we're, we're trying to find depth for it. We're trying to give it a capacity for beauty, give it a capacity for reflection. Um, for me, that's a very uh, active um, sort of thing that you're doing with language. You're, you're, you're wrestling, you're molding it, and you're trying to give it back to uh, your people. Um, and, and, I, and I think for people within native nations and native communities, I mean, I definitely understand why they would want to see, you know, this physical reaction right? or this physical active thing that you have to be doing. Right. And I think that's just, you know, molded. I think it may be a little bit out of anxiety, right. A little bit out of fear, uh, for, um, just living in, in those types of spaces. Right. So they want to see change. They want to see action. Um, and I think, uh, as poets, uh, we are doing it. It's just a little bit more quiet, maybe hmm. a little more on the quiet end. Um, but you know, I definitely, 
uh, do see the merit in terms of wanting to bring action and activism to poetry. And I think it's definitely possible. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to poet Jake Skeets about his debut poetry collection from Milkweed entitled Eyes Bottle Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. If one of your collections was to be about violence and Gallup and another your coming out collection, I, I wanted to ask you about love and desire in relationship to the land. And I'm going to quote something you, you, you once said. On my Instagram, I have the label lover boy only because I love love. I love love songs, romantic comedies, breakup songs, sad relationship songs, and any other art form that is made out of love. My newer poems are beginning to challenge the definition of love because my idea of love has evolved so much since moving home to the reservation. Love from a Diné perspective looks a lot different, and I want to explore that. And I was hoping maybe you could explore it a little bit with us. Uh, talk to us about this different model of love that challenges the love that, that you experienced. When I wrote that post, I was sort of thinking about the function of love and the way it's defined. Um, because, you know, I, I, I did I just moved home and, and I, and I was sort of seeing everything again as an, as sort of a, you know, this new fresh, you know, quote unquote adulthood. Right. Uh, cause I left when I was just a uh, high, high school, uh, graduate. And so I began to notice how sort of like the, you know, hallmark version of love or, you know, th those types of things don't really exist back home. Right. And I was thinking about my parents a lot and how they, um, sort of operate as a relationship, as a, as, you know, you know, a married couple. Um, and I was looking at also my, my aunts and their husbands and, and I was just thinking about even my own relationship too, and thinking about how we don't celebrate, uh, a Valentine's day type of love, right? We don't, you know, get hearts or things like that for her, for our significant others. For me, back home, and this is probably true for a lot of Native communities, but specifically for Diné, our love is our love is expressed through labor and through energy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you show someone you love them not by saying it, but by you know doing it, right? So by by doing something for them, right? Or you know showing uh, you care for them through your own actions, um, trying to you know. Uh, you know, just make them or just be there for them, basically. Right. So I have this. Uh, I was thinking about this example where uh, a cousin of mine, I think, um, or not not a cousin of mine, but uh, well, I guess technically a cousin, but they're like a family friend's child, right? But we call them cousins, even though we're not really related. Um, was stuck in like Las Cruces, um, and we were trying to find a way for them to get back. Right? And again, this is not my blood relative or anything like that. It's just we were all we were all sort of coming together to try and find a way to get this person back from Las Cruces. And so we're, you know, then we just decided, hey, let's let's have someone drive all the way out to Las Cruces <laughs> and bring them back, which for me is, is sort of very sort of strange because, you know, we're not related to this person. But at the end of the day, we still went out of our way to, you know, show that um, we care for this particular person. And so it's a really interesting sort of place to be in um especially as a sort of queer person being um in that type of relationship back home right it's it's very 
we have to be very uh, conscious about how we express uh, our relationship to people, both our own families, but also just uh, the general public. Um, yeah, and it, it's just for me. I, I think I'm very interested in the idea of love and the idea of joy now. Um, you know, especially after such a <laughs> grief-heavy collection. Um, so yeah, I've just been thinking about it still, sort of mm. wrestling with it. Well, I picked out three more poems I was hoping we could hear. Dear Brother, Thieving Ceremony, and How to Become the Moon. Dear Brother, You kissed a man the way I do, but with a handgun. You called it. I'm the fag we were afraid to know. The one we throw rocks at, huff at like horses. I learned to touch a man by touching myself. I learned to be a man by loving one. Prison is not the chicken wire we'd get tangled in. Remember our bloodied knees and bloody palms from mangled handlebars, beer bottles, and cactus spines. Remember the horned toad we didn't mean to kill. Our silence. Thick as the dust kicked up by our skinny legs, you are still that silence, still that boy holding a deflated body with your dawning hands. Thieving Ceremony You've come for me twice before, body swollen with booze, fires for eyes, each time I let you have me and let you cry. Let me heal you. It is your hands that touch me. We become the black wool of a night sky every time. Slide out of our clothes in a back seats in a back room black as a yeti mask. We kiss Sejura to ensure the blackening. We are first man and turquoise boy, ash married in a ceremony that is ours now. Make charcoal of the boys before us who have only come to make love to the mass graves in our teeth. To them, our flesh is still soot, still furnace, still jet, still a cornstalk and juniper tree left burning. How to become the moon. He enters you, hide him, a silver dollar beneath your pillow, in a pawn shop lodged in your throat. Your birthmark will remind him of bruising his father's belt, broom, branch across his face, he will see his past in the whirl of your hair as you go down on him. He sees a boy afraid of the deep end, drowning in the swimming pool of your throat. He swears your eyes are chlorine, blue and black, you both purple soot. He says swallow, but do not hold it as a secret and kiss him so he can know you know him 
the way he can know him. A dark moon rising from the pool water. The lights ribboned on his cheek as he comes up for air. I've been listening to Jake Skeets read from Eyes Bottle Dark with A Mouthful of Flowers. Well, speaking of a of a different sort of love, you, you've also said that your life changed when you read Lucy Tapahanso in high school and then had the opportunity to study with her in undergrad. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear what about her work changed things for you and also just you worked under a lot of really renowned poets, um, Sherwin Bitsui and Joan Kane and others. Uh, maybe you could um, share some of the um, wisdom or insight or, or moments that were pivotal moments for you as a writer. For Lucy, uh, she's actually my grandmother through clan, which I found out when I first met her. Um, so we have this sort of deeper relationship, I think. Um, and so for me, when I read Lucy for the first time, uh, it sort of showed me that being a poet was possible, that a Zinnet person could make a life out of being a poet. Um, and the way she sort of reads her books, uh, reads her poems, are very, very Zinnet, very sort of, she reads it like the way my aunts would read po their poetry, right? The... The, her accent and the way she uh, pronounces words and things like that are very home to me. So for me, it sort of gave, it sort of showed me that the language we use back home is sort of already poetic in a way. Um, and the, there was in we in my poetry class at Tanai College, we had one exercise where I asked them to go to a grocery store and eavesdrop on people just to see what they would say. Um, and one of the one of my students came back with a quote that they heard by a, a, a mother there, uh, in a, and I think it was Walmart in Gallup. And the mother was on the phone, and the mother said, tell me what you want, because I don't want to go all the way back to come all the way back. <laughs> and just that phrase, I don't want to go all the way back to come all the way back, right? is so interesting and so poetic in my mind because it's using language, it's using sounds, it's using everything um, in a way that's so poet from a <laughs> poet. And so I think Lucy has that ability to where she understands that the stories she heard as a child were poems, mm -hmm. and she was able to capture that and translate that onto the page. Um, and so in terms of Lucy, I think it's this idea of translating what we hear uh, in our homes and our, by our by our parents, by our aunts, by our, our grandparents, right? This oral uh, tradition of storytelling, and Lucy showed me a way to translate that onto the page, yeah. right? Um, and so, it's, you know, in terms of like Sherwin, and um, he was also a very big mentor for me. I met him in undergrad, uh, you know, back I think it was 2013, 14, around there. Um, very so, very long time I've been talking with Sherwin, um, and I think. Sherwin was the sort of big uh, sort of figure for me in terms of image and really pushing image um, and making sure I earn language, right? Um, I would always have to make sure that I earn all the metaphors or similes that I use, right? Especially if I use the word like like or <laughs> as he would <laughs> literally stop me in my tracks and say, why are you using like? like yeah. 
justify it. And then, and then maybe we can use it. If you can't justify it, then maybe you should get rid of it and push the image a little bit further. Hmm. And you've mentioned also that Sherwin wanted you to have the physical manuscript on your body and he would surprise you and check to see whether the manuscript was on you. Mm-hmm. What, talk to us about that. What, what was that about for, cause he also practices this with his own work. Yeah. It was just his advice to me. Well, not, maybe not advice, maybe not an assignment cause it was technically in, <laughs> under his uh, mentorship. Yeah. And it was just, uh, um, it, for his justification, it was a way to become uh, one with the book, to internalize the book so that you can really understand its forces and really understand uh, its energies. Um, and so that when it comes to ordering the collection, um, you're able to approach it uh, both as a poet, but also just as a person, right? Mm-hmm. That you've become so part of this that you now know its nuances and you know its turns and you know its breaks and uh, the ordering uh, will become a bit more organic that way. Hmm. So that was one thing that he wanted me to sort of um, do with this particular manuscript was become part of it. Um, and I think also just uh, in terms of craft, in terms of, uh, you know, being a poet, uh, I think also uh, making sure that you're working on it, right? <laughs> that if yeah, you're like, it's you know, always waiting, on you. Yeah, it's always on you. So <laughs> if you're waiting for a bus or you're, yeah. you know, wait in a restaurant waiting for food or, uh, you know, it's something that you're doing that you have time, you can pull it out and start working on it. Yeah. Well, I want to read something else, something you said in an interview online at Shade Literary Arts. You don't ask a Native person to define community, especially from the Navajo Nation. I could go on for hours telling you about the physical and cultural communities of my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and clan relations. Then I could talk about the colonial influence of Western versus Eastern Navajo, New Mexico Navajo versus Arizona Navajo, Border Town Navajo, Checkerboard Navajo. Then I would also have to find a footing within the LGBTQQIA plus community, which rattles me so much because I feel I still, still don't belong there. Then maybe discuss schools of poetics or poetic communities that have informed my work, like language poets or more recently Deep Image, I would find room for Diné poetics and Diné poets like Sherwin Bitsui and Lucy Tapahanzo, both related to me by clan, which would go back to the physical and cultural communities. Then I would have to imagine my current communities on and off the reservation, maybe even talk about how the people on the bus with me is a community or how my MFA poetry cohort is a community. So as simply as possible, I would define community as a place where you understand your place, practice goodwill, and contribute in some capacity. I love that. I love that conception of community. And I was, I guess I was interested after, now that we've talked about some of your mentors at IAI, if we could hear about some of the other poetic communities too. You mentioned language, poetry, and deep image. And what are those to you? And and who, who among those communities are, are people that influence your writing yeah definitely i i think in terms of school poetics uh or po- uh, schools of poets and schools of poetry um yeah definitely i mean language poets uh i first came across in my postmodernism class as an undergrad um yeah it was just a way of looking at language differently 
Um, Deep Image as well was a uh, um, was a recommendation by Santi Fraser during my IIA, and through Deep, Deep Deep Image, I found the Black Mountain poets, so Charles Olson, Robert Creeley, Levertov, Jack Spicer, uh, sort of these poets who, uh, and I think, were very very close to understanding a Diné way of thinking as non-Diné, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very close to understanding how we think and how we approach the world, which is why I rely on them a lot to teach Diné thought and Diné poetics because uh, I don't want to, you know, be breaching, you know, uh, some, I mean, I mean, breaching sort of like the care of Diné story or traditions or things like that. Um, so I take very good care of that and I make sure that I'm not sort of you know, sharing things I'm not supposed to be sharing. So I rely on specifically Black Mountain poets um, because they were so close to understanding how we think. Um, and for me, with language poets, Deep, Deep Image and Black Mountain, uh, I think Jack Spicer says it best when he says, uh, you know, poets are sort of antennas for language or we just we are just sort of vehicles for language. Um, and for me, that's a very Dinette type of thinking where we are not necessarily in the center right the center is elsewhere um and i think when i first met joy hodges she also expressed that type of advice to me i asked her sort of you know um what advice do you have for an emerging poet right um and her answer was it's about listening Mm. it's it's about listening learning uh to listen to things around you learning to listen to the airwaves learning to listen to things that push you or that force you to write um, it's an interesting sort of relationship to have with language when you're constantly listening to it because you sort of begin to hear all the turns and breaks and things like that. And you also begin uh, to negotiate, right? It's it's some of its more harmful things, right? Because right now we are living in a country that's um, sort of molded by a language rooted in violence, right? Um, even just, you know, the way the president tweets, right? It's uh, using language in a way that's taking um, freedoms away, you know, displacing and disappearing people. Um, so I think as poets, we should always be at the forefront of listening to language and learning it again. Yeah. yeah. Well, that reminds me of a, a story you've told of a conversation between Lucy Tapahanzo and her father, where her father says to her that the words of the Diné language are hers to use, but that the words of English should be used with extreme caution. Um, and I wondered if it sounds like that rings true for you, but I'd love to hear more about how you think poetry is a key to maybe finding a different dimension in English than the one that you're hearing when you listen to it, like when you hear Trump tweet. In terms of poetry, because we say we, we you know, because for poets we put, uh, sort of pay very close attention to what we write, right? It's for me the best way to honor language and relearn the capacity for language, because you know we spend so much time on the surface and its depth and its meaning. So, in terms of poetry. That's really a gateway into understanding or relearning language all over again. Um, and you're right. And so in terms of really just thinking about taking care of what you say, right, really thinking about what you say. And I think now that we live in, you know, the Twitterverse, right, um, we sort of forget things. I mean, I don't necessarily forget. Maybe we just take for granted a little bit the language we have. 
uh, English is, is such an interesting young language, right? Um, it's sort of moving away from its original intent, right? Because English is like a trader's language, right? It was created so that a lot of different communities could talk to each other. Hmm. So it has a really interesting sort of intent, um, and it has a really interesting history, right? When you think about the alphabet, we think about the origins of letters and things like that. It goes back to all these different communities, right? We we have roots in all these different languages other than English. Um, but for some reason, it's sort of rooted now in conquest, rooted now in disappearing and displacement. Um, and I think poetry is the best way to uh, go against that. Right, because you're trying to bring this concept of beauty back to English, mm. um, and uh, and so in terms of English itself, the way I use language um, is I borrow the depth of Navajo or the depth of Diné, because it's sort of language structures are so interesting, very poetic. But I'm not a fluent speaker at all, so I really can't use any any specific words or phrases or things like that. So I I, I understand its depth, so I try to bring that depth into English a little bit. Well, and when talking about what to say and what not to say from a Diné perspective. As part of the Diné Writers Collective, you've been participating in an ongoing debate within the Native community about what should or shouldn't be portrayed in Native literature. And it focused on one particular book, but I sort of wanted to ask uh, some of the questions in a more general sense. Mm -hmm. uh, because you've said that you, you've revised most of the collection particularly some early poems to appropriately reflect the stories, energies, and images of Diné culture in a way that you made sure you weren't exploiting the images. Mm. And I guess I wanted to hear a little bit about that process for you, what the considerations are for you as, as a Diné poet in terms of what should and shouldn't, shouldn't be represented, and then maybe a little bit of a peek into the revision process for you when you encounter your own work again and decide you want to um, change it in order to better reflect that respect. For the early poems, it was very early, like very undergrad for me. Um, yeah, and it was when I began to sort of realize that the responsibility of the poet, right, specifically the native poet, um, is definitely respecting these traditions. I had to sort of relearn poetry um, at a very sort of early time when I was, you know, beginning to write seriously. And I think it's a, I think it's maybe uh, instinct at times, um, very uh, sort of intuitive, I think, uh, in terms of opening the opening these sort of uh, relationships with language and relationship with creation story and our histories. And so when I was revising, I definitely had to go through and take some stuff out that I felt was pushing it a little bit. Because I think as when you're a young poet, right, and you're starting out, you want to, you know, break boundaries, right? You want to push a little bit, um, which is just a natural thing, I think. But uh, then I had to sort of, again, relearn and reteach myself that, yes, it's important to break boundaries, but it's also more important to respect some boundaries, right? Specifically with the way um, Danette understand themselves and understand the world through our creation stories, um, yeah, and so I definitely, it was an easy process actually to go through and find things because, you know, I was very, sometimes very blatant and trying to push the boundaries. Uh, so I was easily just 
you know, cutting things out, re rewording re things. Um, and sometimes it was as simple as just changing a name, right? Uh, so, for example, like uh, the poem Buffalo Grass, right? It's it's um, its original title was Turquoise Boy. Turquoise Boy is a is a deity from our creation stories, hmm. and I do use you know the name, right? But that's uh, in one of the poems I just read. Um, but for me, having it as a title was sort of framing it that it was more more like a persona poem, right? Maybe from the perspective of Turquoise Boy, which is not what I was trying to do. Um, so then I came to the terms of just you know changing the title. But sometimes it's as simple as that, right? Because yeah. we always have to think about our readerships and what they're going to think. And so if it's titled Turquoise Boy, they're going to think, oh, this is a poem about Turquoise Boy or from the perspective of Turquoise Boy. So you know I definitely have to very be very conscious about the reader as well. And was the process similar? Because you had a similar concern about portraying the stories of people impacted by violence in Gallup, that you didn't want it to be come across as exploitation or as what you call poverty porn. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go about assessing that? Is that gathering trusted readers um, or was it similarly using your instinct and, and f- figuring out ways to um, address apprehensions there? I think it's a um, definitely very, in- very instinct still, but also having conversations with people both my family and mentors, just the idea of what it means to use stories in your poems. Um, and so, again, I think that's just a, one of the benefits of poetry is that we're able to bring beauty back to things that are very violent or very uh, traumatic, right? And so for me, uh, the way I began to negotiate the fact that I was using these stories was I was using these stories to bring beauty back to them, not to necessarily uh, use them for exploitation reasons or exploiter reasons, right. Or extraction, right. It was more so these stories exist, right. How can I make, how can I change the narrative a little bit? How can I give them language that's more about beauty and not about trauma? Um, and I think that's just a process of, of going through trauma, right. Of learning how to frame it in a way where it's not entirely traumatic or not entirely grief. It's, we find the ways where beauty still exists, right? I think yeah. there's a there's a really interesting balance that happens within Dineth Thought and Life way of understanding beauty, understanding balance, um, and understanding those things means also understanding hardship. Could you talk to us about the writing of the poem Naked? How how and why it's in relationship to the poem Tokenish by James Thomas Stevens, and also the way you put Diné language and English into, into interaction. Yeah, definitely. So James Thomas Stevens has, has that poem tokenish where, uh, the poem is also, also has the phrases, you know, man naked, um, right. The idea of using translating words into, um, man naked. And so I asked, uh, a lot of, a lot of different people about the, how you would translate a naked man, right. And they said, um, there's a, several variations, but the, the common sort of variate, the common sort of phrase is you're saying that they're red, that you, you sort of describe them, that they're, they're color red, mm. uh, which I thought was very interesting, right? Cause it goes back to the notion, right? Of like, you know, the red man or red power, right? Um, but it also goes to the idea that 
they're very understanding about skin color even, right? The idea that we share this, um, not, not skin color in terms of maybe race, but skin color in terms of the, the actual sort of pigment of our skin and how it's related to the landscape. Um, and I think also uh, the um, sort of the, the origin of the word is really based in image. Uh, so for me, it was a very striking image to hear that the way you describe a naked man is calling them, you know, all you know, all red. Basically, they're covered with red because being naked means you're uncovered. But um, what the way we describe it is they're being covered by something else, not clothes. Right. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a really interesting sort of translation. And so I was I was playing with that translation because I was thinking about, you know, intimacy. And I also want to think about brutality and violence and what that meant specifically to masculinity, um, being very vulnerable. Um, and I feel like masculinity now, the way we understand it is the only time that it's vulnerable is during intimacy or during brutality. Right. And so that's where the sort of the, the crux of the poem came, right. It was when we describe a man as being covered in red, it's either, they can either be, you know, naked and an act of intimacy right or they can be covered in blood right an act of violence and i mm-hmm. thought that was very uh sort of a striking image and i just needed to get it down on the page and i sort of used the same format that james thomas stevens did because i think it's very sort of um structured and i like the structure of it mm. could, could we hear it yeah naked with lines from james thomas stevens Tuo Lichi, naked or all red. Husti Lichi go, man naked, man all red. Lichi go, I am naked, I am all red. Shida Lichi go, my uncle naked, my uncle all red. Shinai Lichi go. My brother naked, my brother all red. The closest men become is when they are covered in blood or nothing at all. I've been listening to Jake Skeets read from his new poetry collection. So I watched a video of your lecture at Arizona State University on indigenous ecopoetics. Mm-hmm where you explore what an indigenous eco-poetics can and does look like. But you've also recently on Twitter said that you you never have considered yourself an eco-poet. And so I was curious about that tension. Your thoughts on eco-poetics, your thoughts on indigenous eco-poetics, and then obviously your thoughts on the term eco-poetics. As a collection of poetry, I mean, eco-poetics is definitely a great identifier, specifically for the poetry. But I think... In all aspects of the way we write and engage poetry as poets, I think we are all technically eco-poets. Uh, we're, we're all writing about environment, whether it's nature or just our surroundings, right? And so for me, the term eco-poet was just a way of, I think, maybe trying to maybe divide us a little bit in terms of what um, we all do as poets. And so for me, I think there's greater strength in us coming together as poets and writing, you know, specifically about eco-poetics. 
so that's, I mean, that's the, how I was approaching that particular label and identifier. Mm. Um, but in terms of what indigenous eco-poetics are, I think in, it's really rooted in centering land in the way we approach our poetics and the way we approach our discussions. And I feel like it's a very decolonial type of thing to do when you center land or you center land in your discussions. Um, because I feel like the general public in America doesn't necessarily understand uh, how to do it or they just don't have, um, you know, the, the awareness to do it, right? I mean, how do you center land in your discussions, right? Um, in your scholarship and your poetics, right? It's I think the very first notion is understanding that the land we are on, right, is not our land, right? It's land that is uh, stolen, right? Um, I think that's the very sort of first step. Um, and once you sort of venture into that realm, you're able to really understand your relationship with land then, right? It, um, and I feel like indigenous eco-poetics is really founded in that, right? In the fact that we know that this land that we are standing on is not ours or it's stolen or it's, uh, has this tension associated with it. So we always try to find ways to negotiate that. And I feel like more people need to do that a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. We need to understand how land is being used. I feel like we take it for granted a little bit. In your lecture, you mentioned that all the teachers at Diné College have to incorporate the notion of reciprocity and mm -hmm. balance into their syllabi. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about that for you. How how have your syllabi been shaped by this expectation of the college, which I think comes back to a, perhaps an indigenous eco-poetics, this idea mm -hmm. of reciprocity also? Yeah, definitely. And I think... It's really rooted in our educational philosophy that I mentioned earlier, right? The thinking, planning, living, and reflection. We have to incorporate that particular model. And it's really, again, it goes all the way back to the fourth step, which is see a sin, right? And just the word itself, see a sin, is like this calming sort of notion or this way that you're giving back to what you've completed. Um, and so it's, it's, I think, in terms of reciprocity, that really happens in the CSN sort of step or phase, if you want to call it that, of make of ensuring that what you've completed or what you're going to be doing next is really going toward the benefit of either your family or your community. Um, at, back home, there's this sort of phrase that we hear that I heard all the time, right? Is you know going back to that song, "Go, my son," right? It's so like, "Go, my son, get an education," right? And it's like. Go, my son, get an education, uh, and then come back and help your Indian nation, right? Hmm. Um, and that's a thing I've always heard growing up was that song and just the common sort of phrase I hear from our politicians back home, our tribal government, our, you know, our scholarship, you know, office, right? The idea is that you go, you go off res, you get your education, and you come back, and you use the education to help further your people, um, which is what I wanted to do, which is why I'm back home because I wanted to be back home to try and help as much as I could. Um, and so I try to teach that to my students a little bit. And, and the way it looks in the classroom is because I, I mostly teach composition. Um, so like English 101, right? So the freshman or college composition one. Um, and it's and it's really interesting to approach sort of academic writing through that lens, right? Because for poetry, it's definitely very there. But for academic writing, I have to learn how to talk to them about essays and what it means to write an, an essay and be respectful about everything in terms of what research is, right? I mean, I think research has such a 
uh, strange relationship with Native nations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like research is for them the way for, the way I frame it is that research is important for us to take our stories back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, you have this poem called "Let There Be Coal" that looks at the ways, even if you're living on your ancestral homeland, how settler colonialism and capitalism can make it difficult to have a healthy relationship to the land. And I didn't know about the relationship the Navajo have to the coal industry before reading your collection and then reading more. Mm -hmm. But I knew that here in the Northwest, many of the tribes are involved in logging. And I wonder if it's a similar situation to the Navajo Nation and Navajo Transitional Energy Company, which is now the third largest coal company in the country, um, because it's the major employer and provider of jobs. So I was hoping maybe we could, you could talk about this poem, Let There Be Coal, and then this this uh, conundrum that Native nations are put into mm. by settler, settler colonial capitalism. So Let There Be Coal is definitely based on sort of my own childhood. So I, I remember as a child going to that specific coal mine outside of Window Rock, Arizona, and we would gather coal, right? Um, and I remember this one time we got up really early, like around four in the morning, and we drove out there, and uh, we all got there, and you know we had jackets, we had pickaxes, you know we were ready to, you know, literally go out because they would bring the coal out in these large sort of chunks, and you would have to sort of break it down and you know bust it down into sort of things that you can bag and then take back to your house. And so when I when we got there. I remember because I was sleeping in the car because it was really early. And we got there, and I woke up, and the sun was up, and I looked out because they had left me in the in the car to sleep. And I woke up, and I was looking out, and I saw this huge field that was covered in coal, and I saw all these dads and their sons. Right? It was kind of like a tradition almost. Because for for me, it was I think that was the very first time I had been to that particular one. Uh, gathering coal and it was the first time i saw this all these things and i keep coming back to that memory now um because it's so interesting because i saw this sort of father-son activity right related to resource extraction and i was thinking about how masculinity is really tied to it now specifically speaking right when talking about coal miners um and when i was writing the collection i was very interested in trying to understand what Dinam masculinity is. So I asked, you know, a lot of my friends um, about what it meant to be a man and what it meant, what masculinity meant for them. And it was all rooted in labor, all rooted in sort of physicality, right? Specifically related to the mining or resource extraction economy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in doing that research and, and really understanding what masculinity is, I found that there is a large number of my own friends, right, who are iron workers who would go out and build pipelines, right, for like oil, right? Yeah. Um, and and I was and I was listening to this one person, well, not a friend of mine, but a friend of a friend who was a iron worker who was very young, like my age, uh, even younger, um, who was actually going to work on the Keystone pipeline during Standing Rock. Um, but during that process, his um, his employer decided to keep him in Phoenix. Um, yeah, it was just a strange thing to think, oh, well, these native people are going to be working on this pipeline, um, which is the same thing. And it still goes on today. We still have miners uh, who are who are Navajo, right? Um, and we do rely on the resource extraction. Even our own college, Tina College, some of the royalties we receive are from the mine. And so when it 
it's it's going to be closed here in a bit, right? Uh, Navajo Generating Station is going to be closed, which means Kayanza Coal Mine will, will definitely close. Um, so it's a really interesting sort of thing to be reliant on it, but also be against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's just the way power works, right? They sort of make you become reliant on things that are not good for you, right? Yeah. And you mentioned yesterday in the panel on re-myth-making that mm-hmm. all of this coal is powering all of these cities, mm-hmm. yet Navajo Nation is experiencing tons of power outages at the same time and doesn't have reliable electricity. Yeah, definitely. And even homes don't have electricity still to this day. One of my friends, Lemanuloli, or Manny Loli, who's also a writer, um, just recently got electricity at his house, right? And wow. it's so interesting um, to be in a place with no electricity because uh, my partner's grandmother uh, lives in Rock Point and we went up there and it was at night we went up there and there, there's also no electricity there. And it's so interesting just to be in those types of spaces. But you can see, right, electricity because they live on a mesa. So, But you can see electricity in the nearby town. Wow. They don't have electricity. Right. It's it's it goes back to land and zoning and things like that. Yeah. Could could we hear that poem, Let There Be Coal? Yeah. Sure. Let There Be Coal. One. A father hands a sledgehammer to two boys outside Window Rock. The older goes first, rams a rail spike into the core. It sparks. No light comes. Just dust cloud, glitter black. The boys load the coal. Inside them, a generator station opens its eye. A father sips coal slurry from a styrofoam cup, careful not to burn. Two, train tracks and mines split gallop in two. Men spit Coal tracks rise like a spine when drunk town kneels to the east. Three, spider woman cries her stories coiled in warp and wool, the rug now hung in a San Francisco or Swedish hotel. We bring in the coal that dyes our hands black, not like ash, but like the thing that makes a black sheep black. Four, this is a retelling of the creation story where Navajo people journeyed four worlds and God declared, let there be coal. Some Navajo people say there are actually five worlds. Some say six. A boy busting up coal in Windorock asks his dad, when do we leave for the next one? His dad sits his coffee down to hit the boy. Coal doesn't bust itself. I've been listening to Jake Skeets read from his poetry collection, Eyes Bottle Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. I wanted to explore a little bit more how you create space for the land and for the non-human to enter your poetry, which partially feels like it's happening through experimentation and play as you revise your poems. But I'm going to read a couple of things you said as just a starting off point. Mm-hmm. The first is from your LitHub interview where you say, There's a pond that comes and goes with the rains. For me, this is storytelling. The way the fields arrange themselves against the light and rains. The way dust settles after hundreds of years. 
The pond outside my aunt's house holds enough memory that it comes back, and it holds enough of my own memory that I come back. Poetry is like those fields, and poetry has that kind of storytelling. The fields, ponds, and streets hold stories, and they tell us these stories all the time. My job as a poet became le- learning how to listen to them. And, and similarly, in your, your Rumpus interview, you say that when you were at IAIA, you learned the technique of taking a hike while you were reciting your poetry, or while you're listening to a recording of yourself reading the poem. And in that interview, you say, I always advise that trees and plants like to hear what they give breath to. From this, I simply learned how to listen to the poems. I learned my poems were not stuck in their form. They moved, they danced, and they sometimes danced off the page. A poet cannot offer their poems permanence. A poet can only offer their poems space. So I I guess I was hoping maybe you could talk about some of your revisionary practices, which do involve scrambling words, using online websites that reorder words, Mm -hmm. um, a whole bunch of different techniques that sort of break form, perhaps to allow the voices of otherness or non-human otherness Mm -hmm. into the poems. Talk, Talk to us a little bit about that. I'm very interested in this idea of energy and the the way things that we um, sort of are tied to or attached to have uh, this unconscious sort of push on us when we're writing poetry, Um, specifically our landscapes, right? Um, When I talk about the pond and I talk about those places, those things always find find themselves inside my poetry. Um, I always want to write poems about that particular pond or their moments in my poetry poetry where that pond will come up and I need to talk about it, which is really interesting when I'm doing the revision process. And you're right, I, I try to do a lot of different things, a lot of uh, things that maybe uh, that re- actually re- require a lot of time for me. Um, so specifically with this book and poems that I'm writing now, uh, there would be times where if I was really frustrated with it or was, you know, had that, you know, the block and I would copy the entire poem, put it into an online word scrambler and reword and sort of scramble it. And I would do that maybe 10 to 15 times. Then I would read the scrambled version mm-hmm. and I would find words or phrases that sort of came together just in that randomization. That actually makes sense. And that actually was what I was trying to get at. And so I would pull that, you know, phrase or word or, um, or that sentence out of the, out of the, the scrambled versions and put that back into the poem and reorder it uh, through that, through that um, process. And, a lot of the poems have that sort of um, structure. Uh, another revision process I do is uh, what I call like uh, weaving a poem on a loom, which I've turned into a workshop that I do as well. Is uh, you you um, similar to what Lely Long Soldier does as well? I sort of took some of the techniques that she does to create it into a workshop. Uh, but when I was first doing it for the book, um, I would take the lines on themselves, not necessarily the words, but just the lines, and I would. Uh, put them on, you know, scraps of paper and I would just random, like, you know, just shuffle them as much as I could. I would take some out just randomly. Um, and then I would reorder the poem on, on, you know, on the table, but I would start from the bottom line first and go up similar to how weaves are woven, um, back home. And so you always start at the bottom and you go up. Um, and you know, I would definitely see that during that process that things would fall into place themselves um, which is which is really exciting for me as a poet because I was able to see 
this idea of energy being acted out. Hmm. And when I do the workshop now, I can I I can see and the students see that the places that they are so attached to find themselves even though we we try to manipulate everything, we try to pull away from it, we we push against it. Um and it's it's a really interesting process and I definitely advise all poets to try it. Um I wonder if it's also a a decentering of the human mm-hmm. also yeah. because it, it takes us out from our ego or our will mm-hmm. to be the one that's creating the shape entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it removes us from the center. Yeah. Cause we're not, then we we're then we're not, our ego is not there, right? It's just language. And we're, all we're doing is we're giving it the space, right? We're giving it the page and that's it. Mm. Well, when you say that the, the loom for a Diné rug is a construct of the land and the person's energy, and that is an invisible architecture from which you can see where the weaver began or where the weaver grew tired. And that the poem is like this, the, both the loom, the invisible architecture and the rug. Um, and you had this really great conversation in the rumpus about your interest in chiasmus and chiastic poetic structures. And you relate that again to weaving. Can you talk about, about chiasmus and, and your poems? The way chiasmus works is, right, the idea of wanting to be parallel but not, right? So it's like the parallel lines. Um, so like in a couplet, for instance, right, you have a parallel line and then um, there there wants to be sort of similarity between them, right? You want to read them as a, as a, as a compare, right? But chiasmus is playing with that, right? You're, you're introverting things. So, for example, in like the poem The Body of Bottle, um, what I do there is all chiasmus. Each couplet is a chiastic structure for me, where the end, the beginning image and the end image of each line are supposed to be sort of like opposite. Um, let's see if I can find it here. So, for example, um, cracked hawkweed, right, and flower are supposed to be like a chiastic structure. Nectar and sac- saccharum, you know, pelvis, frazzled, right playing on sound, dark pedal, um, you know, limp, calcified, right? Lazy eye, weed, uh, bottle, body, muddy gin, water, right? Swollen water, matter, lips, sand, blood, hair, river, root, inlet, right? That's the idea of trying to find like these chiastic structures throughout. Um, So I was very interested in playing with the idea of the couplet and playing with the idea of readers wanting um, similarity between certain images, um, right? The idea of barely mourning, and also in buffalo grass, right? Barely mourning, roaches scatter, mm. right? I was very interested in how things sort of fit together when you uh, invert them a little bit and make them opposites or polarize them a little bit. Because um, for me, the, uh, that's the way Diné language works when you translate into English. It's, it's very... Uh, chiastic in that way it's that when you take a Diné sentence and you translate into English it's automatically opposite of what the person said not in terms of meaning but in terms of structure yeah right so I use the I use the example of Lucy Tapahanso right uh, in Hills Brothers Coffee she says the store is where I'm going in Diné that makes sense when you say it in Navajo language mm-hmm. but in English it's backward right so it's chiastic it's, it's, it's an opposite of what was originally said. You've also you've also compared chiastic structure to Diné thought in the sense that 
it creates a circular motion within a poem that um, the line doesn't begin or end, but rather it begins in the middle of things. Mm-hmm. And you've compared that to in being in a dream mm-hmm. in a sense um, that maybe it's troubling linear time. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that ringing true? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like we play with time, right? It's a really great gift. I think as a poet to be able to disrupt linear linearity or linear time, this really disrupting point A to point B. It's, yeah. We are able to physically manipulate time with the way we approach our poems. Well, I, I want to end our discussion with an important piece of the book we haven't yet discussed. It's your uncle mm-hmm. and the photograph of your uncle that is the cover of the book. The photograph was taken by a very famous photographer named Richard Avedon, who was most famous for his fashion and celebrity photography. He photographed the Beatles, Andy Warhol, Toni Morrison, Marilyn Monroe, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Buster Keaton, and did a project of photography and text with James Baldwin and later documented the Vietnam War and the fall of the Berlin Wall. But the work he was most proud of was a project called In the American West, where he photographs miners and housewives and farmers. And in the case of your uncle, he photographs him and titles the photograph Drifter. And this project wasn't without controversies. There were critics who felt like it was falsifying the West through an exploitative form of voyeurism. But it remains one of the uh, things that Avedon's most known for. Um, So I was hoping you could talk to us about your relationship with your uncle, your relationship with the photograph of your uncle, and why this gets not only woven into the book, but also becomes sort of the outward facing image of the book, mm-hmm. a very striking image mm-hmm. um, that we encounter before we open it. So my uncle was uh, murdered in Gallup in 1980, and I was born in 1991. So I obviously didn't know him personally. But I first saw the image when I was child, and I wrote an essay about the the, the first moment I saw, because I, I definitely remember the first moment I saw it. Um, and very had a very you know childlike perspective, right? I was wondering if he was famous, right? Because I, I, of course, I never met him. I never heard my mom talk about him at all. And it wasn't until I saw the image that she's sort of explained to us who um, her brother was. Um, yeah, and it was just a really interesting moment for me, um, and it's something I kept going back to, sort of in very small moments throughout my childhood and teenage years. But I, once I began writing the collection. Um, it came back up again. I think it was through Sherwin Batsui who asked me about it. Because uh, I think I remember mentioning it to him once and he pulled it out on his phone and said, oh, this image you mean? Because apparently he saw it as a as a kid too and as a teenager and he was very interested in the image and what it meant. And I was like, yeah, that image. Um, so that, that really sparked the conversation of, is it possible then to write a poem about it? Uh, which is where Drifter came from. And that was very early before I had moved home. And then... I moved home <laughs> and the first thing I got when I was back home was this new sense of what was going on in Gallup. Right. And this, and the story and this image just automatically came into my head and I was like, I have to see that image again. I wonder if my mom still has it. So we went back to our home in Vanderwagen and I was literally searching, trying to find it because I was like, I need to see that image again. And I found it and I saw that, you know, we had the original copy that Avedon sent, Right. And it was signed when I when I first opened it. It said to Benson, and it was. And I saw a signature. I was like, oh, "Mom, this is a signed copy." Like I didn't even know. And then I saw the image a few pages in again, and I was like, "Okay, it, this is definitely have 
this, I mean, this has to be something I have to write about. And little did I know at that point, it would become a central figure uh, without the, throughout the collection. And so for me, um, even though I didn't personally know my uncle, I know I have uncles, right, who, who, who play that particular role. And, and back home on Diné, your uncles actually play an important part of your becoming a man or your manhood, right? When we have our puberty ceremonies, it's your uncles, not your father. Mm. It's your uncles who sort of line up and they tell you, you know, what, what it's like to be a man, right? What is, what, what masculinity looks like. And so for me, that was a very sort of striking notion because, right, if I'm looking at this image, right, then what is this teaching me about masculinity, right? It's, it's a really interesting sort of image, um, and then, of course, just the whole backstory of Avedon taking the portrait in 1979. Then a year later, he was murdered, right? It was, it was a sort of strange occurrence in our family and one that they had no idea of until 1985 when Avedon finished and sent them the copy. Um, and so uh, in terms of uh, the image itself, um, I'm very interested in how it was composed and how Avedon composed the portraits because... Uh, if you look, you, you'll see that there's the white background, right? And there's really no source of light. And that's what Avedon wanted, right? He wanted to remove background. He wanted the orientation of light to be invisible, which is a weird thing, right? When you're calling your collection or the, the photos in the American West, right? Because that's very background, very setting set, right? But Avedon was trying to remove that, which is really a weird move on, on his part, I think, um, but again, it's a really striking sort of image. Um, and I've tried to find out more about sort of the background. I reached out to the Avedon Foundation saying, are there like records about what happened? Um, of course, I wasn't able to get a hold of it. And I also reached out to the museum that commissioned Avedon to do it. Wow. Nothing yet. And I reached out to Avedon's assistant during this process, who's actually the mother of uh, Owen Wilson, right? The actor. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apparently, she's a photographer who worked with Avedon during yeah. this. And I reached out to huh. her gallery. Her gallery assistant reached out, said, I'll I'll see if she remembers anything. But yeah. I haven't heard back yet. Well, this Avedon's f- photographic technique and the aesthetic sort of brings us full circle to mm-hmm. this question of the field because it feels like he's trying to remove the field. Mm-hmm. Um, he's erased background. There's no shadow. There's no sense of time of day or place um or perspective and you've described that as in a sense an act of conquest uh, maybe related back to what we were talking about with free verse mm-hmm. which which isn't um engaging with space as place but rather as blank space mm-hmm. um but I, I but also that you've talked about this collection being a way to return your uncle's story through returning the field behind your uncle. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, about um, this blankness that he stands against um, and using that maybe like the blank page to, Mm -hmm. to refield your uncle. You're totally right. And the way I approached the page is definitely what I see as the background, right? The fact that it's a blank page definitely looks like um, the blank page of a poem for me. Um, and so when I was working through structures and working through things, uh, I think, um, the white, the white space, uh, was definitely, uh, in terms of the Avedon portrait was definitely meant to be this blank space. Um, and so you're right. I, I tried my best to 
sort of remove that page, right? So what? Ha- what? I mean, I've always wondered where this picture was taken in Gallup, um, where it happened, because that would be really telling where it happened, right? And mm-hmm. um, so I, I've tried to sort of uh, give it background, give it a hi- give it a history, um, and give uh, the portrait specifically a function, right? Um, that way, it's not just you know another image or another portrait. It's it's it has a has a meaning, has a place. It's centered in Gallup um, specifically. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a way of trying to reclaim it a little bit. I think. I was hoping maybe you'd read two poems, both of which end with a blank page. Mm-hmm. So we we arrive on a on a page that's empty as part of the poem. Could we hear Drifter and Glory? Drifter. After Benson James Drifter, Route 66, Gallup, New Mexico, June 30th, 1979, by Richard Avedon. Drift. To drift is to be carried by a current of air or water. But men are not the teeth of their verbs. They pry nouns open with a belt buckle to take a sip. Drifter, a drifter carried by a current of air or water, makes his way from one place to another. See vagabond, see transient, see drunk. See a man with shoulder-length hair, dollar bills fisted, standing before a white screen. See his lips, how still, how horizon, how sunset, a train passing through. I tried to hug him through the spine. Left on the white space, his face becomes a mirror if I stare long enough. My face, charcoaled, pursed, squinting, at the camera, train horn, punch shatters the mirror, frees him from the page. My uncle leaps from the glory. Native American male, early 20s, about 6 to 190 pounds, has the evening for a face. Possible public intoxication, Native American female, no ID, she reported being raped, white shirt, no pants, her legs swallowed the hotel. Shots fired, shots fired, group of males scattered, Native American possibly, one has a skull tattoo, some ran east on Boardman, the skull is still here. Medic unit requested, sagebrush bar, Unidentified male, not responsive, possible hit and run. Witnesses described it as a man being spit out from the mouth of a 4x4. Yellow car heading north on Highway 666, possible DWI. The car is kissing the median like a wasp against a window. Its wing torn to pieces. I just saw a young boy get hit by train. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He ran onto the tracks. Then the train hit him. It hit him. He's still moving. 
He's young, maybe 20. We're on the west side by Walmart. Should I help him? He's moving. He's moving. The train hit him. There's blood all over him. The the train ate through him like a river eats through the arroyo. The train, it sounds like a river. Like a river. A river, goddammit. A river. 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 This is Officer Carson. Medic requested, man down, native male, late 20s, early 30s, stab wounds to the stomach, pulse faint, blood on the snow. He is being erased from the... I've been listening to Jake Skeets read from his poetry collection, Eyes Bottle Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. To me, the the empty space that we end on both of these poems isn't really an empty space. Like the, at least my experience is it's the opposite of the whiteness of Avedon's photography that it's becomes a receptacle for all you've created before rather than a, a blankness. But I wondered if you saw it as an opposition to the empty background because the page is empty. We end, we end in a white field on both of them, mm-hmm. but somehow they don't feel the same. I was very interested in using the blank space, but not making it blank. I was very interested in the field of the page. Um, So it's a way for me to use the white space in a way that is not uh, what Avedon intended, right? So it's a way for me to give what we consider blank space, um, you know, its life or its energy or its background back, right? Um, I feel like the idea of the blank space is a precursor for um, resource extraction, right? When we look at a field or we look at a place that has uh, resources, right, we see it as blank. Therefore, we can go in and take or we can go in and, you know, mine it up and, you know, do things to it that you wouldn't normally do had it been, you know, a place with a background or a place with a specific purpose. Mm. So I feel like um, for me... Um, the project then of the white space became how do I make it a space that is vibrant, even though it's blank? Yeah. Well, I was hoping maybe we could end with one more poem. Mm-hmm. Could could you introduce us to and, and read Red Running Into Water? So Red Running Into Water is a poem that I wrote uh, specifically about my clans. Um, so each uh, stanza begins with my clan. Um, and I wanted to sort of relate it back to its translation um, and also back to the this collection about masculinity specifically um, and also just about the image um, that I keep returning to, the idea of the field, the idea of um, space and the idea of um, sort of the this, this speaker, this image of a boy becoming a man in, 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 this, in this space and what it meant. So Red Running Into Water is actually the translation of my third clan, or my my Che, or my grandfather's clan. <clears throat> Red Running Into Water. Sinajini Nishle. Pronounced the as water whistling through shadow on black bark. The I as boy wearing only yucca, lake-colored. Tsukabaha Bashishchin. The I is now mouth of narrow stream inside a pink mobile home 
with white skirting. The uh sounds like pulling hair from the throat, shaped like the uh. Tukachini dashiche. The uh now a head busted open, red running into water. The i is the boy now naked, red running into water. Boy has the O for mouth, washed with memory of salt water. Pronounce this ah as rain cloud, belly up. The I still the boy floating on the lake, except it is a field. His mouth left O. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Jake. No, thank you for having me. We're talking today to the poet Jake Skeets about his debut collection from Milkweed Editions, Eyes Bottle Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. For the bonus archive, Jake Skeets reads Lucy Tapahanzo's poem, Hills Brothers Coffee, and discusses it in light of Diné poetics. This joins supplemental material by Richard Powers, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Boris Gander, John Keane, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.